Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Tom was an outgoing, well-liked guy. He was one of those people that others just wouldn't have a bad word to say about. He was doing well in his career. He had a good social network of friends, but if you asked him, he'd probably say that he preferred a smaller group of close friends rather than many acquaintances. He'd had a few challenges growing up. His parents separated in his first year of high school, and his older brother had been in a serious car accident about a year later, which really shook the family up. All in all, though, Tom was a regular guy with a promising future. One day, Tom was waiting in line at the bank when someone bumped into him. He stumbled slightly, but caught his balance and turned to look at what had struck him. A man was walking briskly towards the door, obviously in a hurry. But Tom, he was quite shaken up by the experience. He couldn't quite put his finger on it, but he felt flighty, like something bad was about to happen, and he could feel himself starting to sweat. He stood in line, trying to figure out why he was feeling this way, but no matter how much he tried to rationalise the situation, he just seemed to be feeling worse. He just couldn't shake it off. He clenched his fists tightly and could feel the blood pumping between his ears. When he could stand it no longer, he quickly left the queue, walked out of the bank and turned into an alleyway nearby. There he crouched down, breathing heavily and stared at his feet. Tom concentrated on regaining his composure, and after a few minutes, he finally began to relax. Eventually, he stood up, took a deep breath and walked back to his car with no idea about what had just happened. Later that night, Tom lay awake staring at the shadows on the wall of his bedroom, reflecting on what had happened. He couldn't explain it, it just felt like something terrible was about to happen and there was nothing he could do to calm himself down. Finally, exhausted, Tom drifted off to sleep, but he was worried that something like this might happen again and he didn't know how he would cope with it. A few weeks later, Tom was driving to work. Things had been fine, he hadn't been thinking about the episode very often. But suddenly, he felt it again, the panic rising up the back of his neck. He had to pull over and open a window for some fresh air. He focused on the steering wheel, his breathing rapid and shallow, as cars passed by. Tom put his head in his hands and swore to himself. He was gripped with fear, but of what he didn't know precisely. But he couldn't face going into the office that day. Finally, he calmed down enough to drive, so he returned home, lay on his bed and contemplated how he was going to carry on if he kept having these attacks. Over the next few weeks, Tom's friends didn't see him as much. He was always busy and turned down offers to meet up. At first, they didn't think much of it, but finally one of his close friends dropped in just to check on Tom to see how he was doing. Tom answered the door and looked startled. Then he broke down and explained to his friend that he couldn't seem to keep it together and he was afraid that if he went out, he'd have another panic attack. The friend told Tom that someone in his family had experienced a similar thing and had been to see a psychologist and now she was doing much better. It's okay, Tom, the friend told him. Apparently it's quite common and they can help you come right. Tom felt relieved that maybe there was some hope for him. Perhaps things weren't so bad after all.
I wonder how many of you can relate to Tom's experience or something similar. It turns out that we all experience anxiety to one degree or another throughout our lives. For some people though, it occurs regularly and can be debilitating. Anxiety is about fear. Fear of the future or fear of something happening in the present. There is an evolutionary basis for this response as being fearful of future events helps us to plan and prepare and be aware of threats in the environment. And being afraid of threats facing us right now helps us to take the right actions to keep us safe from harm. This response is largely automatic and involves activation of the sympathetic nervous system. It primes us to act by dumping a load of hormones into our system which elevate heart and respiration rates, increase focus and attention, and prime our muscles to move. A key component of the fear circuit is the amygdala. These are two almond-shaped structures in the left and right hemispheres buried deep within the brain. The amygdala receives signals from the hypothalamus, which interprets sensory inputs from other regions of the brain. All of this prepares us to either fight or to flight. So anxiety and panic is a normal physiological response to threatening stimuli. But unfortunately, sometimes the circuit can misfire and operate in maladaptive ways, leading to a heightened sense of fear or anxiety over perceived threats. Anxiety disorders are the most common type of psychological disorders, and they occur in up to 14% of people within Western populations every year. Aside from the cost to the individual, anxiety has a big impact on the medical system and the workplace as a result of medication and treatment costs and days lost from work. But at the extreme end of the scale, anxiety can lead to double the risk of cardiovascular disease and other medical conditions and an increased prevalence of suicide. Of course, the biggest impacts are on the individual who suffers a reduced quality of life. Anxiety can often lead to depression, where the effects of poor mental health compound, leading to even worse outcomes. Mental health disorders are more common among women, and this is the case for anxiety disorders as well, but it could be just because women are more likely to report symptoms. Men tend to bottle their feelings up, they act stoic, so it's hard to know just how much anxiety is an issue for men in the general population. But women do live in a world that's more dangerous for them through the threat of domestic violence and sexual assault and generally having to adapt in a male-dominated world. This may play a major role in the increased prevalence of anxiety disorders among women, but it could also be influenced by biological factors, such as a higher level of reactivity to stress and cultural norms and expectations of women regarding appearance and gender roles. All in all, it's tough to know for sure how common anxiety disorders are particularly as we all face stress and worries at different times throughout our lives. But for those who are most severely afflicted, they know it. Mental health disorders are categorised by the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, which is now in its fifth version. It's known as the DSM, and it lists five different types of anxiety disorders. We're going to consider just two of them here. They are Generalised Anxiety Disorder and Panic Disorder. Panic disorder is what I just described for poor old Tom at the beginning of the episode. Panic disorders arise from the threat of impending doom. It's fear that happens in the present, often for inexplicable reasons. One of the problems that leads to the maintenance of the disorder over time is worry and fear about having a panic attack. This leads to a vicious cycle which can bring on a panic attack. There is also the sense that any type of physiological response may lead to the person thinking that they may be about to have a panic attack. 
For example, when doing some form of exercise, the feeling of an elevated heart rate is similar to that experienced during a panic attack, and this can cause fear and anxiety and lead to an actual panic attack. People who experience panic attacks often report they feel like they are outside of their body, witnessing themselves experiencing the event, the event or that the world is vague and dreamlike. Combined with the physiological symptoms of shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, lightheadedness, sweating, tingling or trembling, the psychological symptoms of panic disorder make the whole experience frightening and overwhelming, and many sufferers experience a strong desire to flee the situation. Panic attacks typically peak in around 10 minutes, although symptoms can take quite a while to subside. For those who have not experienced a panic attack before, they may feel as though they are having a medical event, like a stroke or a heart attack, which further exacerbates the psychological symptoms of the episode. So you can see that panic disorder is a traumatic and fraught event for many people, whose symptoms are confusing and create something of a self-fulfilling prophecy of panic. Panic attacks occur in most people at least once throughout their lives, but for those who become clinically diagnosed, they often come and go over time as different life events create increased stress and anxiety. Generalized anxiety disorder is more about persistent worry over a long period of time. Worry can be about just about anything, but it commonly involves rumination over health, relationships, finances, and other life stresses. It often begins in adolescence and is a chronic condition that persists throughout life. It is related to the personality trait of neuroticism, which we discussed back in episodes 43 and 44. It can lead to social withdrawal, fewer friendships, and difficulty in maintaining intimate relationships. Generalized anxiety disorder is consuming and makes it hard to concentrate on other tasks. It leads to increased fatigue, often as a result of insomnia and muscle tension. People who are worried are restless and irritable and are vulnerable to major depressive disorder. In fact, around 60% of people being treated for anxiety disorders also receive a clinical diagnosis of depression. Are people more anxious today than they were in the past? It's hard to say for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's all about the data. We just didn't recognize many mental health disorders as systematic clinical modes of cognitive and behavioral dysfunction until quite recently. Stigma surrounding gender stereotypes and mental health have also meant for literally generations people were either deemed crazy or just a worrier. A panic attack is embarrassing and frightening but worse is to be labelled as psychotic and bundled up and shipped off to a sanatorium where the staff are likely to be just as disturbed as the patients. What we can say, though, is that life is hard work. We are faced with numerous challenges and pressures that come at us from all sides. Work, family, career, relationships, a bloody pandemic, the list goes on. We are constantly bombarded with decisions and impressions, like how we should look and behave, what we should be into, who we should be into. Social media and the media in general have done us no favours in this regard. So we probably are more anxious today than at other times in the past, but we are all anxious creatures. It's in our nature for good reason. But now more than ever, it seems harder to get on top of our lives and where we fall short, we find worry, fear and anxiety. So what can we do about it? Unfortunately, a common treatment is pharmacological, basically antidepressants. This is often because people start by talking to their GP or regular doctor. Don't get me wrong, the family doctor is an important part of community health care, but they're not specialists in mental health. 
And antidepressants have been shown to be effective for a lot of people, but they do have side effects and they don't address the underlying cognitive issues, which may be the cause of anxiety and panic attacks. While anxiety comes from the interaction of neurotransmitters in the brain, how and why these are over or underexpressed is not clearly understood. Perhaps it's a chicken-egg scenario where behavioural diathesis, that is, say, a predisposition, is inherited through our genes and influenced by our environment, and this leads to an incorrect production and management of neurotransmitters. Or perhaps the problem starts with the physiological mechanisms in the brain which result in emotional problems just as downstream effects from the incorrect levels of neurotransmitters being produced. What we do know, though, is that drugs are effective for this latter reason, but therapy is effective for the former. If we can learn to understand how we are feeling and why we may be feeling that way, then we can learn adaptive techniques to help us to manage symptoms in the future. The most common type of therapy for anxiety disorders is exposure therapy. This is quite simply learning to face your fears. There's a Chinese proverb which says, go straight to the heart of danger, for there you will find safety. To understand why this is effective, we first have to consider conditioning theory. Classical conditioning is what you might have heard of in relation to Pavlov's dogs. In these experiments, Russian scientist Ivan Pavlov was researching salivation in dogs, and he'd measure salivation levels after giving the dogs a meat powder. He found that the dogs would salivate when they heard the experimenter approaching in anticipation of receiving this powder. Pavlov dropped the saliva experiments and then began looking more closely at the anticipatory behaviour. He described the process according to stimulus and response. The researcher provided the meat powder, which he called the unconditioned stimulus, and this resulted in salivation, which he called an unconditioned response. Pavlov then introduced a new stimulus, in this case a metronome, which would click, click, click back and forth. Initially, the dogs did not react to the clicking, but soon Pavlov would set off the metronome and give them some of the meat powder. After a while, the dogs would begin to salivate just at the sound of the metronome. The metronome had become a conditioned stimulus, and the salivation then became the conditioned response, just as in the earlier version of the experiment Pavlov discovered by accident. When the conditioned stimulus was taken away though, the effect would fade. For instance, Pavlov would stop clicking the metronome when feeding the dogs. Sometime later, he started it again, but now the dogs had no conditioned response. They did not salivate just at the sound of the metronome. They had essentially returned to normal. The conditioned response in this case is described as being extinguished, or you might say that the response has been subject to extinction. One of the most influential contributors to the field of psychology, B.F. Skinner, then began to work on this phenomenon. Skinner introduced a theory he called operant conditioning, in which behaviours are either reinforced or avoided. This was demonstrated through rat experiments. In one, when a rat pressed a green lever, a food pellet was dispensed, but if the rat pressed a red lever, it would receive a small electric shock. Not surprisingly, the rats would begin to avoid touching the red lever. A form of behaviour repetition occurs with a return to a pleasant stimulus and the avoidance of an unpleasant one, and this behaviour Skinner described as operant conditioning. Following the Second World War, O. Hobart Maurer introduced a two-factor theory of anxiety disorders which combined this classical and operant conditioning. An individual develops a fear response to an unconditioned stimulus, say, a fear of being in a crowd after being squashed in at a rock concert. The fear experienced by the claustrophobia in this instance was an unconditioned response. 
Later, when in another confined space, say an elevator with several people squashed shoulder to shoulder, the individual is reminded of that original frightening situation and has another fear response which has now become a conditioned response to the neutral stimulus of the elevator. This fear of closed, tight spaces with other people is reinforced through operant conditioning, so the individual now avoids any spaces with other people. They take the stairs rather than use the lift. As avoidance behaviour goes on, the fear associated with the situation increases and is perpetuated until the individual begins to avoid more and more situations which are far removed from the original stimulus. We all operate in this way to some degree. We avoid things which we don't like or which are uncomfortable. At some point though, the anxiety associated with this behaviour leads to social withdrawal and pathological dysfunction. It just gets in the way of being able to enjoy a happy and healthy life. That's when it's important to seek out help, namely exposure therapy, which we'll turn to now. Exposure therapy begins by listing the triggers of the fear response. This is called an exposure hierarchy. In our example, the individual would sit down with a therapist and list the types of places and situations in which the fear occurs, and which they are normally avoided. Together, they'd choose a relatively minor trigger and approach it together, say, the elevator. They might stand in the elevator initially, and keep the doors open, and just get accustomed to the atmosphere and how it feels. Progressively, the individual learns to manage their emotional response to the fear and anxiety of the space, and soon is able to travel in the elevator with a few people. This conditioning is then applied in other situations which are also normally avoided. They work through exposure to the threat slowly and deliberately until the individual rationalises the fear response. This is not making the person unafraid of the stimulus. More, they learn to understand how they feel, why they feel that way, and to rationalise the level of threat. This uses a cognitive approach to think through the challenge by encouraging the individual to believe in their own abilities and capabilities and a behavioural approach to learn the new adaptive behaviour which extinguishes the conditioned response. Together these techniques form a cognitive behavioural approach which has shown remarkable success across hundreds of studies. Another thing to keep in mind is that psychological disorders tend to reduce with age. This follows the U-shaped happiness curve where middle-aged adults become increasingly depressed for a variety of reasons, which uh, we talk about in episode 3 on happiness, and then tend to become more content and accepting of their lot later in life. As a result of this acceptance of life and an appreciation for the simple things like friends, family, and the things that are most important, anxiety begins to fade. This is particularly true of generalized anxiety disorder. Quite simply, when there is less future to worry about, there is less worry. Of course, this is not the case for all people, and anxiety is related to the natural personality trait of neuroticism, so it doesn't magically disappear, but symptoms may subside with time. Unfortunately though, waiting it out might not be the best strategy, as the impact of a lifetime of stress may lead to ill health and other comorbid issues that increase mortality, so basically you might not make it to an age where you start to worry less. Before reaching a point of clinical diagnosis, medication or therapy, which is the case for most of us, it's worth thinking about some less intensive self-directed resources that can help to improve mental health and reduce anxiety in our everyday lives. Mindfulness has been a bit of a buzzword in the last few years, but it is a great tool for finding focus and relaxation. I've spoken about it before in episode 18 on coping with COVID, where I went through a brief example of a guided meditation. 
But mindfulness can be a tool employed in virtually any setting which doesn't require active attention. So don't drop into a quick mindfulness session in the middle of your next presentation at work. But if you're standing in line somewhere or sitting in a waiting room, walking somewhere on an errand, just take a moment to detach from the torrent of thoughts racing through your mind and focus on the environment around you. Listen to the sounds. Feel the subtle sensations of your body as it interacts with your surrounds and focus on your breathing. You can do this virtually anywhere and just a minute or two of focused attention on the present can really do wonders for your state of mind. I'm also a big advocate of exercise. Exercise is one of the most important tools we have for relaxing the mind and body. Maybe not right at the time, but the benefits come later. It can set you up to be in a great mood for the rest of the day. Regardless of what else you accomplish or not during the day, if you get some exercise in, you've achieved something important for your physical and mental health, which pays dividends both then and in the future. Now, I've deliberately avoided this type of podcast episode for a few reasons. One of the main ones is that I'm simply not qualified to offer any guidance or advice, but mental health is a big deal and anxiety-related disorders are the most common type of psychological issue that is faced by so many of us today. We all know about this stuff in one form or another, but it's important to dispel the myths, and if you're someone who does experience some of these symptoms, then understanding them can be a big help for you, and if you're fortunate not to face challenges with anxiety, then a little bit of knowledge can help you to be more sympathetic and understanding of those that do. But a podcast by a non-expert in the field is no substitute for seeking out professional help. If you feel like anxiety or panic is regularly affecting your quality of life, you don't have to suffer in silence. You aren't crazy and help is available. It doesn't have to be that way. But it's hard to seek out treatment, particularly for men. So if you know someone who you think may be struggling with anxiety issues, then perhaps you can help to start the conversation. This is a delicate business as people are often embarrassed and ashamed and it's a highly personal situation they're dealing with. You have to use your best judgment here. But the most important thing is to be understanding and to be a friend first. Every time we see negative outcomes from mental health disorders, we always ask ourselves, why didn't we help? What else could I have done? We're approaching Men's Mental Health Month in November, so we're going to return to this difficult but important topic. But for now, take a deep breath and keep an eye on each other. Anxiety is a natural, normal emotion, and sometimes it gets too much. But fortunately, help is at hand. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now or on our website, theherenow2017.com. I'd love to hear from you about this episode or any other topics. You can reach me through the pages or by email at emailtheherenow@gmail.com. That's email the here and now, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.